0: Please take your Bibles again and open to Judges chapter 13. Judges chapter 13. A family room floor, back seat of a cab. Hospital elevator. Side of the highway. The galley of a 727. What do all these places have in common? They were some of the unusual places that women gave birth in 2022. They're all very surprising places unique births, but still not as unique as the birth story we read about today in Judges chapter 13. The nativity story of the last judge, the last savior God will provide to the nation in this era. The Judge Samson, thanks to the movies, and maybe our own fascination with immorality and the downfall of the powerful. Just think grocery store checkout aisle magazines, if you think that's not true still today. Maybe because of that, we tend to know all the lurid details of Samson's story. But getting his origin story straight casts his adult life in a different light and helps explain why his name appears alongside somebody like David in Hebrews chapter 11 in what we call the Hall of Faith, those who have been models to you and me of faith in God. And so to understand Samson, you need to understand his birth, his origin, we, we come into Samson's life, we, we had Jephthah and his unfortunate vow, and then we had the three judges, these three last, what we called minor judges, minor because we just don't know very much about them, Ibsen, Elon, and Abdon. And that takes us to Judges chapter 13 and verse 1. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, so the Lord gave them into the hand of the Philistines for 40 years. And by this point, we've been reading from Judges 1, we know that that phrase, did what was evil, it means what? (laughs) Don't we know by now? (laughs) Thank you, idolatry, yes. Yes. The rest of you yes i knew it uh yes idolatry so when you see that phrase they are doing what was evil that refers to their idolatry they are worshiping foreign fake little g gods so that's our setting 40 years of philistine oppression it's a little unclear a little bit fuzzy whether that's starting right now and samson comes into the middle of it or whether that samson sort of brings about the end i tend to think this is Stampson sort of throughout this 40 year period. There's some reasons for that. What's what's really impressive, or uh, um, impressive because it's not here in verse one, is the fact there's not a word here about Israel crying out for help. Remember all the other times, there were 80 years of oppression, and they finally cried out for help, or they cried out, or they maybe cried to Yahweh, or they just moaned and complained. There is nothing here, unlike all the other times describing the misery of foreign occupation, this time, no calling out, no prayers to Yahweh, no prophet, just silence. Not entirely unlike the 400 years of silence between Malachi and Matthew. And so this story divulges in four parts. Part number one is this, God promises a son to an unlikely woman. God promises a son to an unlikely woman. Verse two, there was a certain man, that's just kind of a way of saying he's kind of a nobody, <laughs> a certain man of Zorah of the tribe of the Danites whose name was Manoah and his wife was barren and had no children. And the angel of Yahweh appeared to the woman and said to her, behold, you are barren and have not born children. Now clearly she knew that. <laughs> the angel is almost being affrontive here. You are barren. You have not born children. But you shall conceive and bear a son. Now, the unlikely future mother of Samson is never named. She is only referred to as Manoah's woman, Manoah's wife. But she's part of a long line of vitally important, unlikely women, like Rebecca or Rachel or Ruth or Hannah or Elizabeth. And if you're a little girl in this church and your name is Rebecca, Rachel, Ruth, Hannah, or Elizabeth, your parents probably called you that because that name's in the Bible and that was a hero in the story of the Bible. Why were these women heroes? Because they are just some of those barren women whom God blessed with children, children that became integral to the salvation of his people. In other words, if that woman that barren woman had not borne that child, no Jesus. <laughs> that means that God, in his great wisdom and power, had purpose in Mr. and Mrs. Manoah's inability to conceive. Manoah's wife in particular had to suffer years of disappointment in order for God to bring about this particular miraculous birth. Just think about that, her suffering for years and years helped to set the table for God to more extravagantly and clearly display his salvation. Maybe you're struggling to get pregnant. Or maybe you're struggling because you are pregnant. If either of those situations is a trial for you, it is always God's desire that in our trials we look to him. The worst thing you can do in your trial is look to yourself. James said this, count it all joy my brothers. When? When you meet trials of various kinds. That means all the different kinds of trials. Count it all joy, my brothers. Reckon it as joy, my brothers. Determine it to be joy when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know the testing of your faith. That's what this trial is doing. It's testing my faith. Do I really trust Jesus or not? The testing of your faith produces steadfastness or endurance. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, presumably, on how to be joyful in your trial, if any of you lacks that wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. God is not displeased when, in the midst of your trial, you look to him and say, Would you please give me the wisdom to know how to have joy in this trial? He gives generously without reproach. He doesn't say, Oh, I can't believe you have to ask that. But he gives that you may grow in endurance and steadfastness that's one prayer you can pray in any trial lord give me the wisdom to know how to reckon this particular trial as joy so that i can remain steadfast would have been a great prayer for Manoah and his wife to have been praying But there is no suggestion they were giving any thought to God, really, at all. And and I would just say to you, here's some really, really good news for you and me. Because even when you don't pray or ask God for help, because God is so gracious and so kind, God might intervene anyways in your life in spite of you. (laughs) Mano and his wife really are just a reflection of all of Israel at this time. Yahweh is a name they know. He's a distant memory, but nobody's relying on Yahweh. They had grown, the people of Israel had grown so accustomed to Philistine oppression, they're not even complaining about it anymore. It's just how life is here in Israel. Later on, uh, after the adult Samson begins his rescue operations and the Philistines want to retaliate. They, they're coming and, and his fellow Israelites hear that the Philistines are coming. They say to him, this is Judges 15, 11, do you not know that the Philistines are rulers over us? <laughs> like that's how it is, man. The Philistines rule. We've accepted that. Samson himself, he's always philandering with Philistine women. Like He's just he's kind of, everybody's just taking it, accepting it. Israel had succumbed to Philistine cultural domination. And yet in the middle of that, where nobody's thinking about Yahweh, Yahweh determines to send one last judge, one last savior. Aren't you glad God didn't wait for you to cry out out to him before he sent Jesus? God promised that he would have a people And even our own ignorance, and our own unbelief can't get in the way of that. So that's number one. God promises a son to an unlikely woman. Number two, God promises a unique son to an unlikely woman. The instructions from this angel of the Lord continue. Verse four, therefore be careful and drink no wine or strong drink and eat nothing unclean, for behold, you shall conceive and bear a son no razor shall come upon his head, for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb, and he shall begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. So this very unique angel tells Manoah's wife that her son is going to be a Nazarite. From the moment of his conception right through to his death, he's going to be a Nazarite. What does that mean? Well, if you're from Toronto, like me, you're born and raised here, you can say, I am a Torontonian. And everybody who's not from Toronto says, sorry for you. <laughs> <laughs> and if you are from Nazareth, you could say, I am a Nazarene. Jesus was a Nazarene, he was from Nazareth. But you cannot say, I'm a Nazarite. They're just two totally different words and concepts. To understand what a Nazarite is, you need to turn to Numbers chapter 6. So, please go there now. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. Fourth book in your Bible. Numbers chapter 6. And the actual word, Nazar from which we get Nazarite, it means to separate, to, to, to cut off. In a religious sense, it's to be consecrated. The idea surrounding Nazarite is you are separated to God, separated to God. So Nazarite is an individual who makes a vow, can be male or female, to separate himself to Yahweh and that vow consists of three things you're gonna abstain from. It's the first one, Numbers chapter six, verse one. Yahweh spoke to Moses saying, speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When either a man or a woman makes a special vow, the vow of a Nazarite to Nazar, separate himself to to Yahweh, he shall, Nazar, he shall separate himself from wine and strong drink. He shall drink no vinegar made from wine or strong drink and shall not drink any juice or of grapes or eat grapes, fresh or dried all the days of his separation he shall eat nothing that is produced by the grapevine, not even the seeds or the skins." So the first separation, the first abstention is alcohol. No grape juice, well actually it's not just alcohol, anything from the grapes, so no grape juice and no grape wine, no wine from grapes. Just. Showing again that there is grape juice and there is wine in the Bible. No wine vinegar, no fresh grapes, no raisins, not even tasty grape seeds. I don't know, grape skins, and no beer. The ESV translates it there, strong drink. It just means um, alcohol from from grains, what we would refer to as beer. So you're not going to find your Nazarite at the local pub. (laughs) That's abstention number one. Then the next one, verse 5. All the days of his vow of separation, no razor shall touch his head. Until the time is completed for which he separates himself to Yahweh, he shall be holy. He shall let the locks of hair of his head grow long. So the second separation or the second thing he abstains from is a haircut. He has to let his hair grow wild. Kids, this is a good argument you can make for your parents. I would like to be a Nazarite and never get a haircut again. No, you can't say that. Verse 6, all the days that he separates himself to Yahweh, he shall not go near a dead body, not even for his father or for his mother, for brother or sister. If they die, he shall make himself unclean because his separation to God is on his head. All the days of his separation, he's holy to Yahweh. So the last separation, the last abstention is touching a dead body, can't do that. Even if his own parents die, he can't touch the corpse, you can't bury them, he can't touch them in his mourning. And then when you go from verses nine to 11 there in Numbers six, it tells you what he's gotta do if somebody like accidentally dies and falls on his lap. Like, oh, I touched a dead body. Okay, there's things you have to do now because you had taken a Nazarite vow. And then in verses 13 to 17, it describes all the very costly and kind of elaborate sacrifices and offerings you have to make to when you're at the end of the vow. And that includes the very odd thing of finally getting a haircut, a sacred haircut, if you will. Verse 18, and the Nazarite shall shave his consecrated head at the entrance of the tent of meeting, tabernacle, and shall take the hair from his consecrated head and put it on the fire that is under the sacrifice of the peace offering. So he's making different offerings, the peace offering is one of them. You take all the hair you just cut off, you throw it onto the coals of the fire and it burns with your peace offering. Once the hair is cut off, once it's burned on the altar, the vow is over. He or she is no longer a Nazarite, a consecrated one, a one separated to God, and they can have a glass of wine. Verse 20, after that, the Nazarite may drink wine. Uh, Verse 21, this is the law of the Nazarite. So a Nazarite, not a Nazarene, a Nazarite is a person who has fully dedicated themselves to God for a season of time. And the most visible and outward symbol of that time coming to an end was a haircut. Obviously, that's important in the life of Samson, isn't it? So verse 5 again, no razor shall come upon his head. I'm back in Judges 13. Uh, No razor shall come upon his head, for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb. Now, in in Judges 13, it's hard to know how much Samson's future mom really understood of all this. She seems to have grasped enough to understand what a Nazarite is. She certainly understands that something very unique is going on and she also understands enough to obey the voice of the angel of the Lord. And we've seen him before, haven't we? The narrator tipped us off way back in verse three, the angel of the Lord, the angel of Yahweh appeared to the woman. Uh, I don't know if you caught that when we read it, she certainly seems to be catching it because in her first recorded words, which are spoken to her husband Manoah, she confides in him, uh, verse six, and the woman came and told her husband, a man of God came to me. Typically that's a title you would give to a prophet, a holy man of some kind. She goes on, his appearance was like the appearance of the angel of God. She doesn't say the angel of Yahweh, the angel of Elohim. Very awesome. I did not ask him where he was from. And he did not tell me his name. But he said to me, behold, you shall conceive and bear a son, so then drink no wine or strong drink and eat nothing unclean, for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb to the day of his death. So this child to come is not the only special person in this event we are meeting the angel of the Lord again. We saw him back in chapter two, when he pronounced judgment on Israel at a place they would name Bohim, place of weeping. Because the angel of the Lord showed up and said, hey, you've all abandoned God, just want you to know it's gonna be nothing but trouble for you from here on out. And they wept before the Lord. And then the angel of the Lord is the one who was sitting under the terebinth tree and Gideon, peeks over the wall of his winepress when he's treading out grain in the winepress and he sees that man and he knows there's something unique about him and he goes and he speaks to him. That's the angel of the Lord. And just like Gideon, this woman, Manoah's wife, has some idea that this is not your average traveler walking past. Uh, This seems to be an angel, even though she doesn't want to come right out and say it. I mean, after all, that would be a terrible thing to get wrong to call even a mere angel God. And so she refers to him as a man of God who looked like the angel of God, who's very awesome, did not reveal where he was from or what his name was. Now, these are clues in a a story that is ripe with riddles. (laughs) The whole Samson narrative is full of these little riddles. And her report to her husband leaves her husband confused. So this takes us to number three. God directs a puzzled future father on the nature of his son. And this direction began with a prayer to Yahweh from Manoah, verse 8. Then Manoah prayed to Yahweh and said, he's praying to Yahweh, but he says, O Adonai, O Lord, please let the man of God, of Elohim, these are all different titles for for Yahweh. Yahweh is sort of the proper name. These are titles, uh, Adonai, Elohim, um, whom you sent, Let that man come again to us and teach us what we're to do with the child who will be born. And God listened to the voice of Manoah. And the angel of God, not an angel, the angel of God came again to the woman as she sat in the field. But Manoah, her husband, was not with her. So the woman ran quickly and told her husband, Behold, the man who came to me the other day, that guy, has appeared to me. Now, we don't know exactly why it is this way that the angel appears only to the woman, but it could be that this was something of a subtle rebuke to Manoah as God answers Manoah's prayer. I mean, he did answer the prayer, that's for sure. Look at verse nine again. And God listened to the voice of Manoah, and the angel of God came again. You know when the Bible says that God listens to a prayer, it doesn't mean simply that he heard it. It means he responds to it. What an amazing thing to read. <laughs> when you when you read that in verse 9, God listened to the voice of Manoah. That ought to fill you with great joy. We serve the God who hears and answers the prayers of his people. You can drift over words like that really quickly, right? And the meaning doesn't sink in. But think about that for a moment. Think about where we are. Israel is living in open rebellion against God. God's people have sort of forgotten all about him. And here's a man who has a very sort of partial and and probably synchristic kind of faith mixed up with a little Baal stuff and maybe some Asherah and Yahweh. And he makes a prayer to Yahweh and Yahweh listens. And you might be sitting there and thinking, you know, who would I be to ever pray to God? I'm not even sure I'm a Christian yet. And I would urge you from this text, pray. Make your request known to God. Bring your petition to God. And maybe your prayer is something like, I don't really know if I'm a Christian or not. Can you make that clear to me? And I believe God would be delighted to answer that prayer for you. He is a prayer-hearing, a prayer-answering God. But God does not answer the prayer the way Manoah expected. Manoah had prayed that Yahweh would send the man of God to us, me and my missus. (laughs) Send that angel so we know what to do. Verse 9, the angel of God came again to the woman as she sat in the field and I do wonder if that's in part a rebuke to Manoah for not just listening to his wife and doing what had been said the first time or perhaps to just highlight the independence of the angel while God answers our prayers he is not controlled by them he's not some pagan genie God if you get your words just right in prayer he's going to do what you say that ain't how it works Nevertheless, verse 11, Manoah arose and went after his wife and came to the man and said to him, are you the man who spoke to this woman? <laughs> and he said, I am. And Manoah said, now, when your words come true, what is to be the child's manner of life and what is his mission? Did you spy the little inkling of faith there in Manoah? When? When? the words come true. At least he's got faith in the reliability of the message the angel delivered. Unlike, say, Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist, who would doubt the angel Gabriel's prophetic word and have to be mute until that son was born. Manoah, on the other hand, believes that what the angel of the Lord says is going to come true. But he's got questions. Presumably his wife had told him everything the angel of the Lord had said on the first visit and that included, verse five, the angel saying, he shall begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. Who will? The son that's gonna be born to you and your husband, that one will begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. And if your dad, Manoah, you get that news, that's big news. And especially because the first verse told us we're we're under complete Philistine oppression right now, and it's going to last for some years and years. So what's a dad to do? You just got told that your baby is going to be the next judge, the next deliverer, the next Savior. Is there some savior school you take these people to? I don't know. Uh, Is he going to need to join the army? I don't know. What's a good dad supposed to do? You're telling me that I'm getting a judge and what do we do with it? (laughs) Verse 13, the angel of Yahweh said to Manoah, of all that I said to the woman, let her be careful. She may not eat of anything that comes from the vine, neither let her drink wine or strong drink or eat any unclean thing. All that I commanded her, let her observe. So the directions are very clear. If Samson is going to be a Nazarite from the womb, that means Mrs. Manoah starts being a Nazarite today. (laughs) But the angel's also making clear that God is the one providing the Savior and God is going to direct the Savior's life. All Manoah and his wife need to worry about is obeying what they have been called to do. Real saviors are provided, not produced. Real saviors are gifted, not guaranteed, not graduated. And If God chooses to work through people to provide real saviors those people are just conduits of his grace not the cause of his grace and like always ours is to pay very very close attention to what god actually commands what god has revealed what god has revealed in the book this is what we do these are the revealed things the secret things belong to the lord again deuteronomy 29:29 29, 29. The angel of the Lord looks to Manoni and he says, I, I've already told you what you need to do. Now do that. Do that. And friend, if you're, if you're wrestling with what to do in your life, there's lots here that tells you what to do and how to do it. Concern yourself with this. You say, well, I, I, I can't possibly speak the truth in this situation. Yes, you can. I can't possibly not lust after that particular man or woman. Yes, you can. You can walk in the path of life. You can do what God has revealed. And that's what Manoah is told to do. The angel says, I told the woman what to do. You worry about that. I'll worry about the Savior. That takes us to number four. God accepts the worship of the Savior's parents." So Manoah gets his answer, right? Uh, your job, Manoah, is not, not to take him to Savior school, not to like, make him a you know, green beret warrior. Your job is make sure your wife starts this Nazarite vow thing today. That's your job. And Manoah does what any decent human being would do at this point. He looks to the angel of the Lord and he says, hey, can you stay for dinner? <laughs> basically. uh, Verse 15, Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, I think the writer is trying to make a point, please let us detain you and prepare a young goat for you. Prepare a young goat is just a way of saying, can you stay for dinner? So that's hospitality, and hospitality is good, but it's a little bit out of line with the nature of his guest. This is no ordinary angel, if that's the right way to put it, ordinary angel. But this is the angel of the Lord, the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ. This is God, verse 16. And the angel of the Lord, pre-incarnate Jesus, said to Manoah, if you detain me, I will not eat of your food. In other words, I'm not coming for dinner. But if you prepare a burnt offering, remember the burnt offering? You take the whole animal You cut it up, you burn all of it, all of it gets put onto the altar, it's all consumed. It is a picture of you giving yourself wholly to God, having God wholly remove all of your sins. It's complete devotion to God. So it's specific, the burnt offering. If you prepare a burnt offering, then offer it to Yahweh. This is very interesting. The angel of the Lord saying, I'm not staying for dinner, But I'll wait around in case you wanna prepare a burnt offering. But make sure the burnt offering is prepared for Yahweh. And I wonder what's starting to happen in the minds of Manoah and his wife. Verse 16. The angel of the Lord said to Manoah, If you detain me, I will not eat of your food. But if you prepare a burnt offering, then offer it to Yahweh. For Manoah did not know that he was the angel of Yahweh. Not yet, anyway. And Manoah said to the angel of Yahweh, What is your name? So that when your words come true, we may honor you. And the angel of Yahweh said to him, why do you ask my name seeing that it is wonderful? Hmm, wonderful. In Psalm 139, David writes of God's comprehensive power and knowledge. He says things like this, you know the words I'm going to speak before they cross my tongue. I couldn't hide in the darkness because the darkness is as light to you. You see everything, you know everything, you are everywhere. And then David says this. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain to it. You know my thoughts. You know where I go. You know what I do. Even before I say a word out loud, you know what it'll be. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. That's the only other place the word is used this way. Wonderful. The word wonder, wonderful, it means something is incomprehensible. You you just can't understand it. It's beyond your grasp. The scriptures never refer to a mere man as being wonderful. You may call your boyfriend wonderful, but he ain't that kind (laughs) of wonderful. Maybe he is incomprehensible, but he's not that kind of incomprehensible. When this messenger of the Lord, when this angel of the Lord says, my name is wonderful, He's making it very clear exactly who he is because a person's name is a reflection of their character. And all anybody can do when in the presence of the Wonderful One is exactly what Manoah did. Verse 19, so Manoah took the young goat with the grain offering and offered it on the rock to Yahweh, look at the words, to the One who works, what? Wonders, there's that word again, wonders. And Manoah and his wife were watching. Why were they watching? What were they watching? I think they're watching the wonderful one. Verse 20, and when the flame went up toward heaven from the altar, the angel of the Lord went up in the flame of the altar. (laughs) You're just a dude standing there a moment ago And now he ascends in the flame of the altar up in the smoke and into the sky, and he is gone. Now Manoah and his wife were watching, (laughs) and they fell on their faces to the ground. Why do they fall on their faces to the ground? The text tells us, verse 22, Manoah said to his wife, We shall surely die, for we have seen God. They fell on their faces because that's what humans always do when they see God. It, Exodus thirty-three twenty, God says to Moses, when Moses says, I, I want to see you, is you cannot see my face for man shall not see me, meaning in, in all of my glory, man shall not see me and live. To see him in all of his glory would be to die. That's not a threat from God, it is a statement of fact unholy humans cannot stand before a holy God. And so when unholy humans come into the presence of the angel of the Lord, they immediately know something is wrong, something is askew, and when that angel of the Lord ascends to heaven, it becomes evident to them, we have been speaking face to face with God, mysteriously so, he comes in some veiled form, but when God, when that veil is lifted, think Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration, when the veil is lifted, what do the disciples do? They fall on their faces. This text is very clear. Even though just a moment ago, Manoah was standing there talking to the angel of the Lord, back in verse 16, Manoah did not know that he was the angel of the Lord. But now that the angel has accepted the burnt offering and has ascended to heaven in the flames, verse 21 says, then Manoah knew that he was the angel of the Lord. God the Son can be seen as long as he's not transfigured As long as he's not saying his name. Do you remember that moment in Gethsemane with our Lord Jesus when he turned to the angry mob who had come there to arrest them and he asked them, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth, not Nazarite. <laughs> and Jesus said to them, ego eimi, I am. Our Bible's translated, I am he. That's right. It's it's how you would say I am he. But there seems to be a bit of a double meaning there. Because when he said it, the crowd, including Judas, John tells us, they all fell backwards. As if the name of God from the lips of God was too much. That makes me think that Manoah was not too far off track here. Manoah's response to the theophany, it's called, or Christophany, the appearance of Christ, is it's it's right on the one hand. It's foolish on the other. It it, it was wise and good to bow down on his face and worship the wonderful one who works wonders. That's who we're worshiping here. But it was folly to come to the conclusion that he came to that we're going to die because we've seen and conversed with him. His wife helps him out with that. This woman, who is never named, but is the voice of wisdom and godliness in this event. Ever feel like that, husband? (laughs) Like, I would be so lost without my wife, who is the voice of wisdom and godliness in all these events. I feel like that pretty much every single day. An excellent wife who can find she is far more precious than jewels. The heart of her husband trusts in her and he will have no lack of gain. She does him good and not harm all the days of her life. And Mrs. Manoah was one of those wives because she understands something that right now he doesn't know or he hasn't figured out, not a good theologian. Verse 23, his wife said to him, If Yahweh had meant to kill us, he would not have accepted a burnt offering and a grain offering at our hands or shown us all these things or now announced to us such things as these. Newsflash, Brainerd, why would Yahweh kill us right after he promised to give us a baby who's going to deliver his people? We're the most secure human beings on planet Earth right now. Our sacrifice for sins has been accepted. We've been given direct revelation from God. And the faith of Manoah's wife is rewarded. For not only does she become pregnant and bear a son, she is given the privilege of naming him, which is unusual. Verse 24, the woman bore a son, and she called his name Samson. Samson, like the sun in the sky, that sun. Sunny, you might call him. Man like the sun. Which reminds me of David in Psalm 19 when he says in the... In the heavens God has set a tent for the sun which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens, its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. So Samson... The son of Manoah, named after the sun in the sky, is going to grow to be a strong man too, and the enemies of God shall feel his heat. Verse 24, the young man grew and Yahweh blessed him. Yahweh blessed Sonny, and he used Sonny, but perhaps not in the ways his parents, or you and I, would have predicted. So pause there and think back with me over those four points again. God promised a son to an unlikely woman. God promised a unique son to an unlikely woman. God directed a puzzled future father on the nature of his savior son. And God accepted the worship Of the Savior's parents. Sound like anything you know? This last judge, deliverer, Savior, Samson, he was an enigma to everybody. Not only in his unique birth, but he is a man whose great rescues, empowered by God, occurred in ways none of us would have predicted. And today, we celebrate the Lord's Supper by remembering our Savior, Jesus Christ, the one whose great salvation, empowered by his Father, also occurred in ways none of us would have predicted. His life and his great salvation were also enigmatic, weren't they? And one cannot help to see how the nativity story of Samson points forward to the nativity story of Jesus Christ. And that leads us to wonder. Jesus too was born of unusual circumstances. Samson's mother was barren. Christ's mother was a virgin. He too was predicted by an angel. Mrs. Manoah was visited by the angel of the Lord. Mary was visited by the angel Gabriel. Both mothers were promised sons set apart from the moment of their conception. One son would be a Nazarite in the womb. The greater son would be conceived of the Holy Spirit in the womb. And then there was their dads. Manoah had a hard time believing the story of his wife. Joseph had a hard time believing the story of his wife. And then the angels speak to both fathers. Manoah was told what to do by an angel. Joseph was told what to do by an angel. Both of these men obey the angelic voice and then the wives of both Manoah and Joseph bear sons who save. The angel told Mrs. Manoah that her son shall begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. And the angel told Joseph that his son will save his people from their sins. That first savior, Samson, was named after the sun in the sky, but the greater Samson, Jesus, was named after his father in glory. For unto us a child is born, a Son is given, and his name shall be called Wonderful Savior, Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Christ The angel of the Lord, the wonderful one, announced the coming birth of Samson to Manoah and his wife. A lesser angel would announce the coming birth of the wonderful one to Mary and to Joseph. And this is just one way where Samson and Jesus are different. There were many others, (laughs) these two deliverers. Samson, the last deliverer, would never touch a drop of wine. Jesus, the final savior, drank wine with his disciples and promised drink it with us again on the last day. Both men were consecrated to God. Both men were set apart to their ministry. But while Samson could not touch the dead, Jesus grabbed the hand of a little dead girl and raised her to life. Samson kept his strength by guarding his hair. Jesus kept his strength by guarding his heart and his life. One man was supposed to complete his Nazarite vow with many sacrifices, but the greater man was the sacrifice that fulfilled God's vow to save us. One man lived a life full of sins and saved his people Part of the way, the other man came, he became sin for us, and saved his people all the way. One man was a Nazarite, one man was a Nazarene, so the first Samson reminds us of what we need god 's intervention god 's rescue, and the greater Samson, our Lord Jesus Christ, intervenes, rescues, and with this bread and wine, he tells us again and again what he has done, the intervention that he made, the rescue he performed, bread that says this is my body given for you, wine which says, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. And a Christian is a person who has put all their hope for eternity on that finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. You don't believe that you have anything to offer God except your sins, and you grab hold of the righteousness of Christ as your only way to heaven. Is that you Have you come all the way to the greater Samson, the greater deliverer, the greater Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ? If not, now is the time to repent, turn away from your self-reliance and your folly and fully rely on Jesus as your Savior. Is he yours? Is he yours all the way? Have you come to Christ? Are you clinging to Christ? Do you know Christ? Have you rejected your sins? If you're a Christian, your first step of obedience is to be baptized. It is to publicly, to go public with your faith in Christ. And once you do this and are joined to a church, you joyfully participate in the Lord's Supper, which is the family meal of the church. And at our family meal, we invite all Christians to join us, not just members of Grace Fellowship Church, but typically when we say Christians, that means you are a baptized member in good standing of another gospel-preaching church. And if that describes you, we want you to come and join with us. And if you're unsure if that describes you or not, you come and talk to me or one of the other elders after this service. But if you know you're not a Christian, then you must never eat and drink of this special meal. Do you know why? Because in this meal, you are boldly telling the world, I am not my own, but belong, body and soul, in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood. It has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. (laughs) To be saying that with your actions, eating and drinking, when it is not true in your heart, is really the height of hypocrisy. And it strikes me that in his earthly ministry, our Lord Jesus seemed to only grow upset not with the woman caught in adultery, not with children who were barging in on his talks, but with hypocrites. Which makes me think that in the eyes of God, the sin of hypocrisy is particularly evil. So if you're not a Christian, the greatest thing to do is just, we're gonna pass bread trays and then we'll pass trays that have the wine in it. We'll just pass it down the aisle and, and you just pass it to the person next to you. And I would say to you that we affirm your honesty. I would love to speak to you about how you can participate in this meal as a person who's been born again to a living hope as John read for us earlier in this service. Because you've repented from your sins and put your trust in Jesus.